Boudicca. Today, the very name itself conjures up images of freedom and defiance, of standing up against injustice and oppression. Yet, over the long centuries since she lived, the name has meant many things to many people. What do we really know about the woman behind the legend? Very little, unfortunately. Just the words of two Roman writers. One of them near contemporary, the other writing close to 200 years later. Much like most enemies of the Romans, no sources survive to tell her side of the story. In those Roman sources, recording events 2,000 years ago, Boudicca, a powerful queen of the Iceni tribe of modern-day East Anglia, appears fully formed in the historical record, with a fierce image and flowing red hair, ultimately fighting a desperate doomed war for the independence of her people. When her story was eventually rediscovered by the Tudors in the 16th century, during the reign of another powerful queen, the name was Latinized as Boadicea. Though in reality, we don't even know for sure whether this was her name at all, it being the Celtic for victorious. It was during the 19th century as the world teetered on the verge of a new industrial future. During the reign of another powerful female ruler, Queen Victoria, that her story became widely known and celebrated in Britain. Just like in neighbouring European countries, Boudicca gained new life, being utilised as a national icon during this era of uncertainty. Akin to other Celtic rulers, like Ambriorix in Belgium, Vercingetorix in France, Hermann in Germany, and Viriathus in Spain, Yet, the real story of Boudicca is a far more nuanced one. To those unfortunate Roman settlers and Romanized Britons that she and her vast army came into contact with in the first century AD, she was a nightmare. Remarkably, the legacy of that war can still be seen here in London in a thick layer of burned ash that permeates the archaeological record along Oxford Street, Southwark and King Street, among others. And this isn't the only town to be permanently marked by this swathe of destruction across southeastern Britain. For in 61 AD, this city, then home to tens of thousands of people, was burned to the ground. According to the Roman sources, its entire remaining population put to the sword. Great tortures inflicted here, en masse. Though we can't ever know to what extent these records are propagandistic, a large number of those people were in fact native Britons, gradually being absorbed into the new Roman world. According to the Roman sources, none not even women and children, were spared. The real Boudicca 
was very much a woman of her time, living through an era of outside invasion, when the very world of her people was coming to an end. Desperate times called for desperate measures. Her story is not only a sad one, but one of the greatest ever told in British history. Today, using archaeology as well as the written record, we can arrive at a more accurate picture of Boudicca than ever before. Boudicca is surely one of the most iconic women in all of history. But there are other fascinating figures from all different eras too. To celebrate Women's History Month, here at the History YouTubers community, we've decided to present an entire playlist of iconic women throughout history. Be sure to check out the other videos in the playlist, and in particular, the one before this one by History and Headlines, and the one after by History Who Yesterday's Nation. You don't want to miss out on this playlist. Hello folks, Pete Kelly here. I am the creator of History Time. I'm broadcasting here out of the History Time mountaintop stronghold. This is all CGI around me, of course, where I'm currently bunkered down working on new videos. Now, these are very long videos that I'm putting out here. And as I'm a one-man team, they take a huge amount of time and effort to make, as research, writing, editing, etc. takes a long time for just me to do on my own. So, I hope you don't mind me putting an advert on this one. And if you like seeing more from me, go and subscribe to my new channel, which I'm also going to be pumping videos out of over the coming months. So, without further ado, this video is sponsored by Magellan TV, a really awesome subscription service. A bit like Netflix, but populated entirely by documentaries. Let's have a look. Magellan TV is an on-demand video streaming service with over 2,000 documentaries to watch on all manner of different subjects, including history, science, nature, culture and geography. Films, series and exclusive playlists you can't find anywhere else. You can watch Magellan anywhere at any time, on any device, through the high quality app, which also offers a wide selection of content in 4K at no extra cost. And the best part, new documentaries are added on a weekly basis. Those of you who head on over to try.magellantv.com forward slash history time or use my link in the description below will get a free trial. So what are you waiting for? After you've finished this video, why not go and continue learning about ancient Europe with this documentary that I really enjoyed on the Celts. Head on over and get yourself some free knowledge. It's 60 AD. 17 years have passed since the legions of Rome first crossed over the narrow sea to invade the island of Britannia. Veteran commander Aulus Plautius had been the man initially chosen for the job, officially sailing to the aid of an ousted pro-Roman king, Verica. Though equally important was the Emperor Claudius's desire to seem powerful in his office. Brutal war had followed in many areas, though in others accommodation and commerce continued, as it had done for decades. 
the Romans, in truth, seeking to avoid conflict wherever they could. After innumerable military campaigns and slightly less violent annexations, by 60 AD, much of the island had by now been provincialized. Client kings often becoming Roman in lifestyle. Seen in vast palaces such as that at Fishbourne, potentially built for a Celtic ruler. But this certainly wasn't the case everywhere on the island, especially on the wild western coast of modern-day Wales. By 60 AD, Claudius and Plautius were both long gone, political machination in Rome having put a new emperor on the throne. Now at the head of two battle-hardened legions, Roman provincial governor Suetonius Paulinus is mopping up some of the last resistance to his rule on the island of Anglesey, then known as Mona. A mysterious, ancient place and last stronghold of the Druids. Two and a half years earlier, the young emperor Nero, living as a god on earth in the capital, had put Paulinus in charge. His orders to hack his way into the wild western frontier. A determined career soldier, Paulinus followed his orders to the letter. In truth, though he himself came from a wealthy background in Rome, Paulinus's men were mostly not Roman at all, but the descendants of provincialized conquered peoples from all over the empire. Offered a chance at Roman citizenship by doing their years in the army. And land afterwards in conquered places. For those that survived, service in the military could be extremely profitable, offering not only monetary incentives to sign up, but in guaranteeing their descendants citizenship in the empire. This far west, the territory was largely unknown, and the fighting had been fierce. The Britons by this stage being experts at guerrilla warfare, often slipping back into the wilderness to fight another day. But it wasn't the violence that shocked Paulinus's men most. For people living 2,000 years ago, absolutely everything was imbued with a spirit. By our standards, Roman soldiers were extremely superstitious. This was a war of the mind. It wasn't just the Celts that they had to beat, but their gods too. Usually, foreign deities would be placated in the short term with offerings, so as to not offend them and ensure a Roman victory. In time, often becoming incorporated into their own pantheon by syncretizing these gods with Roman ones. 
such as can be seen with Sulis Minerva at Bath. Yet this took a long time, generations in the making. Many of those fighting on Mona had been born long before Romans ever set foot on their land. Even before one particular incident completely rattled the Roman army, the omens were not good. For on that particular day, a large group of druids had arrayed themselves on a beach in all black robes, arms raised to the heavens, yelling curses and chanting at the approaching Roman troops. Shocked and terrified by what they were witnessing, the Romans set about hacking the druids down. Before they could fully comprehend what was happening, a funeral pyre the Celts had been stood on was lit. The Romans had participated in a mass human sacrifice to the Celtic gods. This was terrible news, but worse was on the way. Brought to Paulinus by a messenger from the south. 300 miles away, on the other side of the island, the Iceni, a horse-rearing people of the east, had risen up. Raising a vast army, astonishingly led not by a man, but a woman, a queen and figurehead who began unifying several Celtic tribes under her command. Reluctantly coming to terms with the people of Anglesey, Paulinus had no choice but to begin a desperate journey south with his outriders to Londinium. The fate of the province in his hands. This is the story related to us today by the historian Tacitus. A writer with a good reputation as being non-biased and fairly accurate. His father-in-law Agricola had been present as a young officer attached to Paulinus' staff, allowing Tacitus first-hand knowledge for his account. Unfortunately, for the Celtic side of the story, we know next to nothing. They left us no written sources. But we can try to form a picture nonetheless. Not long after the Roman invasion of 43 AD, 11 British kings are said to have come to the Emperor Claudius at Camulodunum to pledge their fealty to Rome. Arriving from as far afield as Orkney, these rulers had, for now at least, been awed into submission by the superior Roman military, a force which had just steamrolled through the south. Prasitagus, king of the Iceni, whose lands now bordered the Trinovantes, the former holders of Camulodunum, the new Roman provincial capital, may well have been present. Or he may have been installed as king following the defeat of an Iceni rebellion in 47 AD. We can't be sure. Besides that, 
we know little else. Yet, nevertheless, archaeology can help us get a picture of these people. And the picture we get is astonishing. Far from the crude barbarians often depicted by their enemies, this was a sophisticated land of metallurgists and city builders. A world of storied oral traditions passed down from one generation to another by word of mouth, almost all of which is lost today. When we look at pre-Roman Britain today, we have to forget the borders and counties that sprung up in later ages, for this was a very different world to the one born later. The Iceni lived in a very flat land. Like the other tribes of Britain, their borders dictated by natural barriers such as rivers and fens. Unlike other regions of the island, which had access to elevated areas, the Iceni didn't build hill forts. They were a horse people of the open plains. Part of a rich continent-spanning culture dating far back into the Bronze Age, evidenced by huge amounts of items found all over the landscape but in particular at three rich archaeological centres in modern-day East Anglia. The Iceni were apparently so into breeding animals that prior to the conquest, Roman writers assumed that they didn't farm at all. In truth, the Iceni were very different to their southern neighbours. The Belgae and Atrobates to the south and Parisii to the north, at least partly, seem to have originated on the continent in Gaul. And other tribes around them, such as the Canti, Regni and Trinovantes, all had strong links there, visible in the archaeological record in the form of coins and trade goods. Indeed, Julius Caesar's justification for launching the first invasions of Britain some 90 years earlier had partly been to do with British warriors involving themselves in the Great War for Gaul. His own rebellious cavalry commander Commius betraying him and fleeing back to Britain afterwards. In comparison, the Iceni, not having strong links with the continent, may very well have been seen as a wild, uncivilised group. Although, interestingly, the archaeological record isn't so clear-cut. During the twilight years between Caesar's aborted invasions and that of Claudius in 43 AD, some 90 years later, the southern tribes of Britain had began minting their own coins. Unique pieces of metal which fell out of use almost as soon as the standardised Roman coins came in. The Iceni were no exception adorning theirs with horses. According to Tacitus, Prasitagus lived a long and full life. Although it's likely a fair few Iceni warriors were present during the warrior king Caraticus's lengthy war against Rome, Prasitagus, at least officially, remained loyal to his new overlords. 
In return, he was allowed to remain nominally independent. His people receiving vast loans in order to adopt the Roman way of life. Another ruler who did the same was in control of the largest state in Britain, Cartis Mandua, Queen of the Brigantes. Maybe a suggestion that Tacitus's assertion that many female rulers held sway in Britain does hold some truth. This was a very different culture to that of the Romans. Archaeology suggests great respect for female rulers, buried with chariots and other war gear, such as the Wetwang graves. Rather than fight an unwinnable war, Cartis Mandua attempted to save her people by working with Rome, ruling successfully for more than 20 years. In order to placate the Emperor Nero in an effort to ease the transition, Prasutagus named three people in his will. The Emperor and his own two daughters, whose names are lost, with Boudicca presumably expecting to act as regent on their behalf until they came of age. As long as the king lived, the peace was kept. But when he died, all hell broke loose. When this proud people rich in gold with a long tradition of fine metalworking and reputation as masters at horse raising came into the empire they effectively started again from scratch being forced to adopt a coinage to enjoy the benefits of rome strapped for cash and looking for quick money by 60 AD, it seems to be that Nero's policy had become one of fully absorbing client kingdoms into provinces upon the deaths of their rulers, removing any semblance of independence to annex them entirely. In the case of the Iceni, the calling in of loans by Roman financiers soon devolved into heavy-handed pillaging, slaving, and mass rape. Not even Boudicca a royal queen was spared. According to Tacitus, when she protested against the pillaging of her kingdom, her daughters were raped, she herself stripped naked, beaten, and scoured with barbed whips. In doing so, however, the Romans had outstretched themselves. Iceni territory was far away from Rome on the very fringe of the empire, and a reckoning was on the way. Colchester. Today, it's a normal English town in Essex. Greggs, McDonald's, and Primark hold sway. Close to 2,000 years ago, however, this was a Roman settlement, Camulodunum, the first provincial capital of Britain, and their first stronghold on the island, seized from the defeated Trinovantes. By 60 AD, this place was far from the front line. A thriving town populated by retired soldiers, often with British wives. Yet, according to Tacitus, almost as soon as the 20th Legion, usually based here, went west with Paulinus to Anglesey, strange omens began to be seen. Corpses washing up in the Thames, 
a blood-red colour in the sea, and a phantom town laid to waste upon the horizon. Whether they knew it or not, events were being set in motion out in the forests and marshes outside the city. Since the pillaging of their lands by the Romans, Tacitus tells us that the Iceni didn't even bother to plant crops. Instead, spending the entire summer forging weapons, sending messages to neighbouring tribes and readying themselves for war. Soon enough, Boudicca and the ruling elite of the Iceni had called a secret council, attended by the neighbouring Trinovantes, Catiavaleni and others. Peoples who she apparently called kinsmen, an astonishing notion for formerly warring tribes. By the end of that meeting, she'd been chosen as war queen, and a course of action decided. The ensuing events can be seen not only in the written record, but in archaeology too. A number of outlying villas have been found in the surrounding countryside, along with evidence of destruction at the hands of the vengeful Britons. According to the Roman sources, Boudicca called upon the goddess Andraste to help her, one of over 400 Celtic deities whose names we know. Boudicca was certainly of royal blood. She wouldn't have been followed otherwise. Maybe she was even a druid or some kind of religious leader herself. A terrifying prospect for the people of Colchester. Soon enough, the gleaming capital of Britannia, gargantuan temple to the deified Emperor Claudius, ever visible atop the skyline, monument of empire to some, symbol of oppression to others, was put to the torch. The entire town burned in a firestorm. None of the women and children were evacuated. The surviving citizens made their way to the temple of Claudius, holding out there for two days before they were battered and burned out. No one survived. Roman tombs and burial places, many of them triumphantly celebrating the conquest, were desecrated, statues defaced and destroyed. Not too far away, upon hearing the news, a contingent of the 9th Legion marched to take on the rebel army. Though we know nothing of Boudicca's planning, or whether she led the army herself or had generals to do it for her, the Romans were outmaneuvered, taken completely by surprise in an ambush. Only the cavalry escaped. With no other significant Roman army anywhere nearby, the road lay wide open to London. Riding hard and fast ahead of the main army with a contingent of cavalry, Paulinus rode day and night. Upon hearing of the sack of Colchester, he knew where Boudicca was headed. The city of Londinium had been set up as a trading centre on the Thames just a decade before, to open up the province to the rest of the empire. Since then, 
ambitious merchants had flocked from all over the world to make their fortunes with cheap taxes. Now populated by many tens of thousands of people, it was the largest settlement in Britain. And it had no walls or defences of any kind. When Paulinus finally arrived on the outskirts, he wasn't much further ahead of the Celtic army, perhaps a hundred thousand strong. He found streams of refugees flooding out to the pro-Roman tribes of the south. But most people had nowhere to go. It wasn't just men in Boudicca's army, but their entire families, nations on the move. And according to the Roman sources, the women fought just as much as the men. Perhaps now carrying the captured standard of the shattered Hispania Legion before them. Faced with this vast seething anger of humanity, Paulinus opted to sacrifice the city to save the province. Racing back north along Watling Street to meet his army, whilst sending out desperate messages to other contingents of troops scattered around the province. The city didn't stand a chance. Tacitus puts the death toll at 70,000 people. According to him, the Britons couldn't wait to murder, torture and crucify. Later embellished further by Dio Cassius, speaking of hideous tortures. Although he was writing 200 years later, was this propaganda or a real memory of the event? We can't ever know for sure. Though it may be that there were certain brutal religious rituals demanded by the Druids in times of crisis. However, it may be that London wasn't even the main target, simply being burned en route to the far more symbolic town of Verulamium, modern-day St Albans, the former capital of Caraticus's Catiavellaini, which also suffered the same fate. Much of the population of London, having prior warning, may well have escaped before Boudicca's arrival. This is speculation, but the archaeology is real enough. Three disembodied skulls having been found at Walbrook Stream, and of course the thick layer of ash all over the city, dating to this time. Freed slaves and other British people continued to flock to Boudicca's cause swelling her numbers, according to the Roman writers, to 130,000 people. At this stage, the Emperor Nero seriously considered pulling his remaining troops out of Britain entirely, abandoning the province to its fate. Of course, very possibly toppling him from his position in the process. Barbarians weren't supposed to beat Romans this eventuality having the potential to disrupt the entire empire. Paulinus, however, and his men had more to lose than most, no doubt many having wives and families in Britain, 
Their futures and fortunes were inextricably tied up with the island, and they wouldn't go down without a fight. Boudicca, having destroyed the three largest cities in Roman Britain, moved out of St Albans, heading north, knowing her only chance to win the war was to catch Paulinus before he could escape and reform a significant army. A battle was on the cards, one of the largest ever fought on British soil. Heading north, according to the Roman sources, Paulinus swelled his ranks with retired soldiers from all over the land. He sent word to the other legion still in Britannia, down in Dumnonia. Its commander, Pontius Postumus, simply declined to join. Nevertheless, Paulinus was very much made of the same stuff as Julius Caesar, always maximizing his own advantages whilst minimizing those of the enemy. There was a reason why he'd abandoned London, the retreat allowing him to take up a strategic position of his own choosing, a place he knew well, somewhere along Watling Street, later known as the Place of the Chariots. Only fielding somewhere between 5,000 and 11,000 men, Paulinus placed his legionaries in the centre, cavalry on the wings. His secret weapon, however, was the landscape itself. Placing his line on top of a hill, his flanks surrounded by impassable woodland. When Boudicca's army arrived, likely well over 100,000 of them, Cassius Dio says 230,000. It must have been a terrifying sight. Carnic's war horns sounding out over the shouting of warriors. Champions racing forwards to sing the deeds of their ancestors and encourage the Romans to face them in single combat, perhaps carrying the heads of defeated foes around their waists. Dio calls it the largest army ever faced by Rome. If it had been, it makes sense why Boudicca needed to attack immediately. Feeding that many people would have been a logistical nightmare. Writing with the benefit of hindsight, their works very much designed to be performed out loud at parties and events, Tacitus and Dio were both partial to writing speeches for their protagonists. We have one for each respective leader at Watling Street. In truth, we have no idea whether either is true. Tacitus in particular, having a propensity for putting his own words in the mouths of leaders, like Calgacus in Scotland, using the barbarian as a mouthpiece for himself to say something about Rome. According to Dio, Boudicca atop her chariot raced through the ranks of her men, shouting at them with appraisals of her ancestors saying she is descended from mighty men, reminding her people of why they are fighting for freedom. That's what she, as a woman, will do, and let the men live in slavery if they wish. Paulinus's speech was simpler. 
We've beaten them before, we'll beat them again. For him, it was a simple matter of life and death. Better to fight now than be tortured to death later. Soon enough, as the entire British army surged forwards as a mass, intending to use their numbers to overwhelm and break through the Roman line, their war chariots moved out ahead. To the Romans, these were a relic of the ancient world, long since defunct in their style of combat. Though still deadly nonetheless, the charioteers raced forwards towards the Roman line, hurling insults and challenges as they went, along with javelins thrown between each army in equal measure. Though massively outnumbered, the Romans held the advantage, and Paulinus knew it. It took all the Roman metal to hold the line, but of course there was a reason Paulinus had been chosen for the job. Because of the copses of wood on either side of the Roman line, only a fraction of the Iceni could engage at any one time, a large mass of humanity building up behind them. The well-disciplined Romans, on the other hand, constantly recycled their numbers, rotating their ranks to keep those at the front as fresh as possible. As the afternoon wore on, the British numbers worked against them crushing them together in a terrible state as they attempted to fight uphill towards the Romans. Paulinus's cavalry beginning to circle around to nip at their wings. We're told that before the battle, the Celts were so sure of victory they'd brought their families and children up in a large wagon train to watch the battle, and possibly to cut off the Roman retreat. Now those wagons would cause the doom of the Iceni, blocking them from getting away from the battlefield. As soon as the Celts began to break ranks, the battle was effectively over. It was in retreat that most soldiers lost their lives, and the Romans, in an especially vengeful mood, left no one alive, killing around 80,000 in all, according to Tacitus. Paulinus's legion was given a new title to award their victory, whereas Posthumus, who'd refused to join the war, took his own life from shame. Boudicca and a handful of her followers managed to escape the battlefield. Tacitus's information was that she drank poison. What happened to her daughters? Nobody knows. The war for Britannia had only lasted a few months, but the Romans would make sure it never happened again. 7,000 hardened reinforcements being drafted in from Germany, and the lands of the Iceni and Trinovantes mercilessly pillaged before being covered in fortifications. The surviving Iceni forcibly moved into market towns to allow Romanization to gradually take place. You've been watching History Time. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Let me know in the comments what you think, and I'll see you on the next one.